From field to table and flame to fork, the pursuit of the outdoor connection is ingrained deep within one's spirit. The draw to the flame of a campfire is felt from around the world. Why do we hunt? Pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Episode 17, here we are rolling in. Well, it's coming up 9 o'clock at night here, but uh, that was a great conversation with John Legnard, I believe. How you, pretty sure that's how you pronounce his last name, right? Legnard? That's what I, th- I think. Yeah, and he's the brewmaster from Blue Moon Brewing, which is a phenomenal beer. And and, didn't he uh, say it's called Belgium Moon in Canada? It, it's Belgian Moon in Canada, which you, you can get. It's it's really, really good. My first experience with Blue Moon, as I mentioned in the, the episode, was in uh, Reno in 2020 at the Sheep Show. And it's a less than one club, and it's like 20 bucks to get in. And it's all-you-can-drink beer, all-you-can-eat pretzels and peanuts, and it's just a great BS session. And three, three hunts, four hunts were given away to people that never shot a, a sheep and just a, a, a great BS session. And that was kind of the approach we wanted to take with tonight's podcast with him of just hanging around a campfire as we always do. And I, th- I thought it was a great conversation. We had uh, a lot of fun and the hour flew by. It did. As, as yeah. it does. So. Yeah. We could have, we could have talked for a few more hours. I think he's oh, an interesting guy and he's got some great stories. I think we just, uh, just saw the tip of the iceberg. Oh, absolutely. And we we didn't even really dig into his, his raffle addiction. He, he on his on his Instagram, he calls himself a raffle addict. And the reason for it is this guy's got 3 out of the 4 North American sheep and he's won every hunt by raffle tickets. Like I, I need some of that do luck. It. Absolutely. I need some of that luck and we we were fortunate enough to to see behind him on the video as we were recording this, some of those sheep and just what what an amazing the, what an amazing view we had. But hearing the passion about the hunts and how, as we keep saying that there's 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 more to the hunt than the kill, and he was able to to tell some stories about leaving essentially leaving pavement to the mountaintop and and recant this the story and he's got freezers full of meat and he's got some beautiful memories on the wall and every piece lives with him to this day and it's it was it was a great conversation i enjoyed the the hour we spent with him oh i did too i, was, I thought it was great and speaking of adventures you just came back from a hell of one so we, we haven't talked since since that so what's what's what happened there you disappeared on huh? Yeah, I uh, went up to Kitimat with my son, and we did a three-day trip into the ocean on a liveaboard. So it was just the captain and my son and I uh, on a 27-foot fishing vessel. Oh, it was a liveaboard. I didn't know that. Yeah, oh yeah. No, we, we spent three... It's, it's the, the, the fellow that runs it basically calls it a, a fishing tour. So you get to see a lot of the coast up there. And you know, he hits these different fishing spots, and but you know, it's not just the fishing; it's also just getting to cruise along some of this unbelievably dramatic coastline in in that central coast of British Columbia. So uh, it was it was just stunningly beautiful, it, incredibly rugged country. I mean, the uh, hmm. the cliffs and the and the on all the islands just come straight down to the water. There's so few places where you could beach a boat. It's it's intimidating. I mean, if you were out there in a small craft and the wind picked up. You'd, you'd you'd be pretty pretty white knuckled, I think, the whole way out. But it's uh, it's truly stunningly beautiful country, and the fishing was phenomenal. We did really well on salmon. We got some halibut and some cod and some black sea bass. Uh, so we've got. I think we ended up with 155 pounds of of fish fillets in the freezer. So we're going to be eating fish uh, a couple times a week for a year, which is going to be great. Wow, that's. That's a hell of a, uh, a a trip. I didn't know you were on a liveaboard. I, I thought you were just hoteling it or something in one of the resorts. But what, what the hell was that like? I've never 
so if I go too far offshore, I get a little seasick. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty good. I when I did my biology degree, I worked for fisheries and oceans for a work term. So I spent about a month at sea, and I only got seasick once for about four days. We were on a 270 foot long ship in Hecate Strait in November, and it is one of the most wicked bodies of water in the world that time of year. And we ended up with these incredible waves that i mean you could barely walk you just like this the ship was just rolling and bucking and and uh that got me but other than that experience i've spent a lot of time in the water and i've never gotten seasick and and this this trip was we had some rough weather the first day some big swells and lots of white caps and and he was like we couldn't go all the places he wanted to on the first day because it was a really stiff wind blowing but uh yeah i love it i just love being out in the water and you know as long as it's not dangerous the rough water doesn't bother me too much <laughs> Oh, I, I love fishing. I, I love uh, getting out on the ocean, but sleeping on a boat? Did, oh, you, that, just, that you doesn't... sleep like a baby. You know, you just get rocked to sleep. It's awesome. <laughs> not this guy. That, not this guy. So that's definitely out of the cards for me. But uh, take me out on the boat anytime. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll jig some lures. We'll catch some fish. We'll uh, fillet some salmon. But no, not sleeping on it. Not for me. So... Anyway, let's uh, let's roll into episode seventeen with uh, John Legnard from Blue Moon Beer. Across Canada and throughout the world, if you come across a campfire in the woods, on a mountaintop, or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive. Pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Episode 17 of the Campfire Conversations, sitting here in balmy Prince George. It's probably damn near 30 degrees at 7.30 at night. And I don't, I don't like the heat. What about you, JP? What's it like where you are? Oh, it's even hotter than that. And I, you know, I don't mind the heat. Uh, having spent some time in Alabama, I kind of got conditioned to the heat. But uh, it, it's been getting up to about body temperature. We've had some 36, <laughs> 37 days. And, you know, once, the, once it hits body temperature, that's too hot. Yeah, we had a couple of those days here. So, it, but it, we, last week, we, we had 12, 13 degrees, middle of the day. And it was, it was nice. Garden took a beating, as they do. But now, like I said, we're... We're over 30 degrees again. It's just been a weird, weird summer. So, Well, it has. It was so cold and wet up until early July, then it just uh, oh. just turned. Yeah, well, what are we at? Three weeks out now before September, and the cool fall days roll in, and we'll be into hunting season. So, Oh, yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> so what's the weather like down where you are, John? Let's Let's talk a little bit about you, where you're calling us from. Well coming to us from we'll say because it's not really a phone call but uh yeah tell us who you are a little bit about you and where you're at yeah so just outside denver colorado it was a uh, balmy 34c here i can Oof. do the i can do the metric conversion for those uh <laughs> north That's, of the border, I, i'm so. impressed john <laughs> uh well i'm a brewmaster so we do things in the metric system as well as the mm -hmm. you know our antiquated uh system but uh I'm actually about 45 minutes west of downtown Denver, up in the foothills. And uh, here's another one for you. I'm at almost 3,000 meters in my living room. So my oh, house wow. is at oh, wow. 9750 for those of you that uh, need, the, need the conversion to the English system. So over <laughs> almost 10,000 feet. And that's about as high as you can get on what we call the front range. So I go from Denver, which is you know 5,280 feet, to... 97.50 every day back and forth so i gained about four thousand vertical feet coming home from work so Good stopped half Lord. stopped halfway home and did a quick hike from eight thousand to nine thousand feet so getting ready <laughs> for some sheep seasons out here um wow yeah so you know out outside denver i wouldn't say i live in but colorado still work in downtown denver so i spend a fair amount of time in the big city but try to get out um pretty much as often as i can and get away from people in the city so that's that's kind of my what i do in this my spare time um brewmaster by trade i actually run and operate the blue moon brewery which is called belgian moon in canada for those of you that are going to sit around a campfire and drink a beer you can thank me for that so i uh, helped get that started in 1995 so 
I do a lot of uh, a lot of beer related stuff, but uh, hunting is literally my passion. Um, I did not start out as a hunter. I grew up in a non-hunting family on the east coast of the U.S. in Connecticut, just outside New York City. Um, friends, family, nobody really hunted. I didn't. I think there was one guy whose dad went deer hunting like in November, and it was mostly go to the cabin and drink beer. Um, so I didn't. I didn't really have a hunting exposure growing up. I, I love the outdoors. I was always. You know, out messing around in the ponds, damming up streams. You know, I did do a lot of fishing back then, uh, but I moved to Colorado when I was 18, and I was going to become a veterinarian. So I've always had an interest in animals, always loved animals. Um, but as they say, college is, you know, you never know what you don't know when you go to college. And I went to uh, Colorado State University, which is an hour north of Denver in Fort Collins. Great location, awesome, awesome outdoor opportunities. Um, you know, it's right on the edge of the foothills. There's wild rivers, there's camping, there's wilderness, Rocky Mountain National Park's less than an hour away. So I spent a lot of time outdoors, um, late 80s, early 90s. And one of my college roommates was a guy from South Dakota. And he said, hey, I'm going back for Thanksgiving. Do you want to come with us? We're going to go pheasant hunting. I'm like, well, I've never been hunting. Um, I don't think at that point I'd fired a shotgun more than maybe a dozen times. You know, somebody's like, oh, we're going to go shoot clay pigeons. And so... That was kind of my first exposure to any type of hunting, firearms, etc. I had no, no no exposure before that, so it was kind of an, an icky word in my family. So, um, yeah, so not your traditional how you get started, um, but as you can see, I, I kind of went in, jumped in with both feet, and got really hooked. Um, so I think I've got the perspective of coming at it from a non-hunting, non-traditional. I think I got my hunter safety when I was 23 or 24 years old with a bunch of 12-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, I I love hearing about the stories of the, the non-traditional people that, that break into hunting and, and how, how they did it because I'm... I myself, I grew up in Vancouver and I, I was exposed to hunting at about the age of eight or nine. I was, I was taken out of school by my grandfather back when you could do that with, without having, uh, organizations called on you for child endangerment. And he, he, he took me up with the boys and, uh, I, I learned how to shoot a 22 and, and whittle some sticks and just hang around and do what guys do at that age. And I didn't, I, I didn't pick up a gun until... I was in my mid-teens again with air cadets and did some rifle range stuff. And I actually didn't get my hunting license until I was in my mid-twenties. And same sort of thing. It was just... Fairly same similar, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Same sort of thing. It was, I, I loved the outdoors. I did all of the survival schools. And I was fishing whenever I could and eating huckleberries. and. But it, it was kind of... I, I came up to Prince George to visit my uncle. And he said, well, let's go hunting what it was it was a foreign thing and went out and it was well now i need to get my hunting license now i need to get my firearms license and here i am uh, 20 some odd years later hooked and yeah it's it, it's it's a, it's something you chase without even knowing you're chasing it as a kid right you're you're chasing that 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 strive to connect to the outdoors without realizing what you're doing and i, I love hearing the stories about those people so here's a question for you if you're at almost ten thousand feet, what's the oxygen like there? Like, do you have to re really train for a sheep hunt, or are you just kind of acclimate acclimatized to it? Well, I mean, you do get acclimatized, and I can tell you that uh, my parents still live on the east coast, and when I go there, my resting heart rate is somewhere in the high forties or low fifties. So my wow. red red blood cell count is probably really high. Resting heart rate here is you know mid fifties to maybe sixty at the you know, and so you do get acclimated to it i believe mm -hmm. there's 40 percent less oxygen in the air at 10,000 feet than there is at sea level and it declines rapidly after that so like this weekend i was up at 12 to 13,000 feet because that's where the sheep were but there's a big difference between 10 and 12 and 13 and really at 14 you can feel it um it gets really thin really fast and so there's a lot of people you can drive to two 14ers in colorado and get you know start it 5,000, 6,000 feet and get out of the car at 14, you stand up and you're like, whoa, you're not acclimatized to it at all. You're, you went from zero to 14,000 feet or 5,000 to 14,000 feet pretty quickly. Um, 
it really bothers people that come to visit and come to go on vacation and come to go skiing and they don't spend enough time coming to Denver, spending a day at 5,000 and then going up to seven or eight or nine to where the ski areas are. Um, and I see the same thing with hunters. They drive in here from Michigan and Ohio and they, you know, spend all day driving and they drive right to 10,000 feet. And the first two or three days they're cached. They got a headache. They don't feel good. They think they're sick. Um, and that happens, that happens a lot. I tell people, drink a lot of water, don't drink a lot of beer, and acclimatize if you can at a lower elevation. For even 24 hours, it'll get your body, get your body adjusted. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing. <laughs> I just had a quick look to see what we are at here in PG, and we're only at about 2,000 feet. I thought we were much higher than that because we get, <laughs> it seems like, eight feet of snow every winter. But that's yeah. insane. I, well, I, we, I, yeah. We get well, about two inches. Of, oh, I was gonna say we get oh, about two hundred like, inches of snow at my house. So I, I'm I'm right up there with you guys. We get a lot of snow here, and the right, ski areas yeah. are mm-hmm. less than forty miles away. So they get they get tons more than we do. Four hundred inches. I, I was just gonna say it, it's amazing you're at ten thousand feet because our biggest peaks here in the West Kootenays are about ten thousand feet, and they're craggly ice covered peaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's it like it's it's such a different world, right? But I was going to say the only 14,000-foot peak, peak I've ever climbed was actually in Colorado. Um, I was living in Shiprock, New Mexico, work at the hospital there, and I, uh, I used to do a lot of hikes in Colorado since it was so handy and had a, a friend who was working with me, and we, uh, we climbed this peak. But it sounds sort of impressive until I tell people the highway went to about 11,000 feet. Which so it was, was like, that? you know, you still climbed quite a bit, yeah. but it's uh, like it, it t- the fact that you could actually drive on a paved road at 11,000 feet. I think it was 11,000. Maybe you can correct me. That's that, that was that's what I believed at the time anyway. And uh, yeah, it's just a different world. The elevations are extreme in Colorado. Yeah, yeah it's it's further south. So you don't get tree line here is about 11, 11, 5. And so it's not like northern B.C. where it's 4,500 or 5,000 vertical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, that's level. about six where I am. Yeah. yeah, that's insane. You just it's it's something you don't fathom because you 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 see things on TV like oh pe- people are living in in they call it, was it the Mile High City or something Denver yeah and and you're even higher than that where you are <laughs> that's that's nuts. yeah I'm almost double I'm almost two miles high yeah it's it's something you you don't fathom I, I've never been there yet we're we're gonna go visit Jan one day and she we we keep oh you absolutely but, have to yeah. You know, Denver, the Mile High City, the, the athletes claim it's 20% less oxygen at this elevation than it is at sea level. So, like, baseballs travel further. Your cardio for hockey or basketball or soccer or football, it, it takes a toll. And so they constantly remind athletes when they get to Denver, welcome to the Mile High City. You are 5,000 feet above sea level. And it kind of it plays with their mind, I think. Well, it it plays with mine. Just just thinking about how high that that seems, and I know uh, they say when you're in an airplane, if you're above ten thousand feet, you need to have oxygen, and it needs to pressurize, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and your ears pop. I can only imagine trying to to breathe without being acclimatized to it. It's it's, it's a little daunting. So, but that that's nuts. you get used to it. Yeah. I, I I can imagine. I can imagine. So I, you mentioned Blue Moon, and that's I, I got to try that down at the Wild Sheep Foundation in 2020 at uh, the the Sheep Show. And less, it was less it, than it was one, great. probably, right? You, you nailed it. <laughs> you nailed it, and I'm still less than one. I didn't I didn't win, but <laughs> that would that was so good. And what what I noticed was uh, that you guys sponsor that event, and uh, yeah, that's that's something that, that's I I feel really strongly about. Mm-hmm. And it's something, the Lesson One Club, if you haven't taken a Wild Sheep, you get in the door for 20 bucks. you got to be a member of Wild Sheep. And it's, it's actually the best event of Wild Sheep, if you ask me. It's, it's no business. It's just hanging out, drinking beer. It's beer, peanuts, and pretzels. And it's, it's probably the lowest key event. But I helped them. You know, we talked about it. I said, I'll donate the beer to it. Very first one, I think we gave them three kegs of beer. And Gray likes to say, we ran out in the first hour, and he had a heck of a bar tab after that because he promised everybody free beer. So we, we kept it up, and I think we're in the you know two dozen to 30 
kegs of beer we give away now, and I want to say it's fifteen hundred or sixteen hundred people in the room. So it it's it's a big deal, um, and I just love doing it. I love seeing those people get excited. I love it when they're in the room and they win a sheet tag, and I mean it changes people's lives. I mean that's that's the thing about sheep hunting in particular. If you get that opportunity and you capitalize on it, it'll make you a different person. And I, I think that's part of hunting as well. I tell people that all the time. I mean, some of my adventures on the hunting front, I go on these adventures, and then when I get back to work, I'm beat up after, you know, three or four days gone, and I'm like, yeah, 40 hours a week? That seems like an easy job, you know? Oh, this something mm-hmm. went wrong? Oh, you mean the plane didn't come back four days late to get you? Like, it, it changes your perspective on what a problem is, I think, when you go on a, on a real yeah. hunt. Yeah, I did it. That's one of the... Yeah, that's one of the advantages of doing something really tough. I used to actually be a guide. I did that for a couple of years, and I guided for mountain goat. And they were all backpack hunts. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I'd be carrying my all my gear, uh, the food for 10 days for two people, and half the gear of the client, right? I was 25 years old, so that's, yeah. you know, you, you guys pretty strong at that age. But having said that, when you do really tough things like that, you're, you're exactly right, John. When you face other challenges in life, you just reference back to that, and it's like, you know, this might be tough, but that was tougher. You know, and it, it does put things into perspective that makes more things seem possible. It, it makes the hard things in life not so hard when you really experience something difficult. I'll give you a prime example. I love taking other people hunting. I love taking people that aren't experienced or haven't experienced hunting hunting. And I took a good friend of mine who is an older gentleman. He's in his late 70s now, and he was not a hunter. He was a... CEO of a major corporation and he got invited to go like on a dove and quail, you know, shoot. And so he went and did it. And then he's talking to me on the phone. He's a good friend of my parents. I've known him for 40 plus years. He's like, well, I'm going to go goose and duck hunting. What do I need? I'm like, well, go to Cabela's, get a Benelli shotgun, you know, get the waders, get the insulated jack, get all the stuff you need. And then he said, well, I've got this opportunity with these guys up in Wyoming they want to take me on an antelope hunt, and I told them about you, and they said, you can come with us. And I'm like, I'm in. Let's go. And so we got on an antelope hunt, and he had never hunted big game before. You know, he went and got the rifle, I told him, the gear, I told him, the back. I mean, he just decks out. Whatever it needed, he got it. And so we're stalking this first antelope, and he goes, and I'm like, get down, get down. And he just lays down flat. And antelope country out here is full of cactus. Well, he did not look to see where he was laying down, but he didn't say anything. He just laid there. I said, get the gun up. He gets the gun up. He shoots this antelope, kills this antelope. Then he stands up, and he's got cactus spines sticking out of his chest. And I said, three months from now, you're going to be picking a spine out of your chest in the middle of a board meeting. You're going to remember this antelope hunt for the rest of your life. On the way out, the truck gets stuck. We're six miles from pavement, 25 miles from town. And he was driving because he'd already filled his tag, and he went off into a ditch. And he's like, "Oh my God, I'll, I'll call the I'll call the tow company." I'm like, "Rick, there's nobody coming. We're on our own." And it, now it's starting to snow. Now it's getting dark, and he's getting more and more concerned. And this is terrible. This is the worst thing ever. And I'm like, "No, we'll dig and we'll put some, you know, rocks under there, and we'll try to get the truck out." And he goes, well, "What happens if we don't?" I said, "Well, we can sleep in the truck, or we can hike to the road and hitchhike to town." Three, four hours later, we finally get the truck unstuck. We get to town. He's thinking about this is the most death-defying thing he's ever been on. And I said, here's the deal. You're going to be driving your BMW down the highway. You're going to get a flat tire someday. And you're going to would have thought that was the worst thing to ever happen to you. You're going to think back to this day. He called me months later. He goes, I got a flat tire. He goes, it was no big deal. I told him how I was stuck in Wyoming and we were going to die. But we had meat. And we, you know, He just went on and on. And I, I do do think... All of those experiences change your perspective on life. And I, I call it, it's like the battery theory. I tell people this all the time. You know, I go to work for eight hours a day. Well, that's a third of my 24 hours. What I do with the other 24 hours, I might go on a hike. I might go do something. I might go spot sheep, whatever it is. Well, I, I spend eight hours more after work doing something else. So when I go to work, it's only a quarter, a third of my day. I'm like, I, I got this. It's not that hard. So I, I think if you can instill that in people, if they go to 40 hours worth of work and on Friday they kick back and they're like I'm not moving until Monday morning when I have to go back to work they're missing missing a big part of life and I think that's all because of hunting it's stuff I like to do outside of work well I think I think you nailed it there John like I think that's one of the issues with many people and their discontent with life uh, is the fact they haven't found their passion you know and, and that or at least they haven't pursued it and I think 
you know, I'm very similar to you, John. I mean, hunting is a big part of my life. It's it shaped most aspects of my life, including where I live and how I live and what I do and, you know, what kind of vehicle I drive and, you know, it's just everything. And uh, I, I think about living a life where I, you know, if I didn't have that, you know, I didn't have that, at least something that was equivalent to that. And uh, it would be a lot harder to go to work, I think. Mm-hmm. It really would because I know work work is great because, you know, I just have to move my arms and legs for eight hours and I get to do all this amazing stuff after. And uh, that's a good deal. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with both of you because I, I, I think of the, the connections and the people I've been able to meet through hunting. And the conversations I've been able to have, and it's it's not a it's not a second thought when hell, for example, JP said was about this time last year. You said you ever hunt a turkey to me, and I said no. He goes, well, come down next April. Said, okay, it was a twelve hour drive each way, and there were there was no no triggers pulled. We saw a ton of turkeys, but things just didn't work out. And the best part about the trip was that the the friendship. And the people we were hanging out with, and it's 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 so much deeper than 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 the kill, right? You just get that that connection, as you said. No matter how you're doing it, and the memories are being forged, and yeah. it's I, I'm looking forward to doing well, it again. <laughs> well, you know, so, yeah, you know something too, like you know, for sheep hunting, for example. I mean, like you were talking about John, how that changes people, and it really does. Uh, if I don't know anything about somebody, but I know they hunt sheep, I actually know something about them. You know, and I, I, you know, I, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but I, I feel that's true. No, no I think it is absolutely. too. And I mean, I've been, I've been hooked on sheep. So my, my story with sheep hunting is I started off, you know, killed my first deer when I was 24 years old, little forkhorn. I had a couple of guys that took me on a horseback elk hunt. I killed a, killed an elk on my very first day of my very first elk hunt. After the old timers were like, well, you know, we don't go in the fingers. The fingers are where the elk are, but you got to wait for them to come out. If you go in there, you're going to get lost. You'll never get an elk out of there. And I said, well, it's like a mile and a half. And I just didn't, I didn't know how tough it would be to get an elk out of there. So I didn't really care, but I shot an elk on the very first day. And there I come back to camp and they're like, you shot an elk. You're the, you're the new guy. And I'm like, well, I went where you told me not to, but I heard elk. And so I went there and killed elk. So I, I think it, you know, it is, it is kind of in layers what what makes what makes you a sheep hunter but i didn't know you could hunt sheep when i started hunting the the booklet in colorado is a separate book there's a elk deer and antelope and then there's a sheep but goat book well they don't publish as many of the sheep and goat books and back then there was no internet and so i found out through the rocky mountain bighorn society which is the member you know organization that's a fanaz affiliate just like wild or wild sheep affiliate there i met jan but they were at a booth, and I talked to a guy, and he goes, oh, well, you're a hunter. You should be applying for sheep. And I went, oh, crap, I can apply for sheep. So, you know, you had to scrape together $153.25. You send in your application, and you get a rejection letter. Well, you do that for four years or three years, and you have three points. That's kind of the minimum. And I, I'll never forget the third year. I was trying to get my third point. I didn't have $153.25, so I borrowed it from my girlfriend, now wife, and little did she know that was probably the worst $153 she ever gave me. But I got my third point, and the very the fourth year, the very first year I was eligible, I drew an archery-only ram tag in Colorado. I'd never hunted with a bow. I'd never killed anything with a bow. And I'm like, well, I got a sheep tag, and this is the only way I'm going to be able to hunt sheep is if I get a bow tag because they're easier to draw. And so I scouted my ass off. I, I met the biologist. I went to the unit. And then I quickly found out that no one had killed a sheep in this unit in five years. And the last guy to kill a sheep in this unit was the only guy to kill one in 10 years. And he happened to be the husband of the biologist. So I befriended them and I I just kind of made myself, I won't say a nuisance, but I like asked a lot of questions. I'd go on a hike and then I'd say, hey, I climbed to the top of this mountain and I saw this over here. Oh, well, you should go over there next time. And so every time they were kind of, they were leaving breadcrumbs and kind of helping me figure it out. But I killed a ram on day 23 of a 28-day season completely by myself, having never hunted sheep before or with a bow, which is just dumb luck. Wow. Um, I saw two rams the whole time I was hunting. I got within 38 yards of one and 42 of the other, and I said, 40 yards is my max. I'm going to shoot that one. And so I shot a ram, and unfortunately, he took a step just as I was shooting and ran off. Well, I tracked him for seven hours that day. 
couldn't find the damn ram. Came back out, went to the biologist's house, talked to the husband. He said, well, I'll come up with you tomorrow and look. And we found him within probably four or five hours. He'd run maybe a half mile with a, you know, arrow through his liver, but, you know, not a perfect double lunger. Um, but that was kind of, I was like, from then on, I'm hooked. Like, this is the coolest thing ever. And so I joined that organization, or I'd already joined the organization, Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society, but I said, I'm going to volunteer. And so I, I volunteered for the board of directors. I met a guy who's now no longer with us, but he was a premier sheep guide in Colorado, Al Vallejo. And at the first meeting I ever went to, he said, well, I've been on 100 sheep hunts, and we should do this. And I went, 100 sheep hunts? Holy crap. And so what's crazy is he became a friend of mine for 15 years before he died, 16 years. And he actually helped me kill the ram that I won the statewide raffle with, 182-inch full-body bighorn you see over my head. And so it kind of it kind of paid itself back and came full circle, and I was like, man, that's that's what sheep hunting's about: giving back, doing all the work, even though you may never draw another tag, but donating time, donating money, donating your hard work, and that's just you know, I think that's just good. And like you said, if you know somebody's a sheep hunter, you know somebody's at wild sheep, you know they're a member, they've hunted sheep, they probably have that same drive, they probably have that same intensity. And you just know you're going to get along with them. There, there aren't many, very many sheep hunters you meet that aren't good people. So. Yeah, I've I've never actually been on a sheep hunt. And I'm a life member of uh, the Wild Sheep Society of BC, of the Wild Sheep Foundation, uh, Midwest Chapter, and Alberta Wild Sheep. And I'm always looking, okay, where, where, can, I, where can I help out? And as you say, you, you, you just got to give back. So... Why is it important for you and, in particular, Blue Moon, to, to give back the way you do? You, you, started, you started late, as you said, but th- th- there's obviously a strong connection there. So I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into why it's so important to give back. You know, I think it's important to give back because, you know, I had the opportunity and the opportunities are getting harder and harder. So if I can help guide somebody or get them to the opportunity or take them out in the field and experience something that I've experienced, I think that's very, very rewarding. Um, I'll give you another example. My nephew, who is my wife's sister's child, um, moved to Colorado. He loves the outdoors. He wanted to get into hunting and fishing. His mom was not a hunter-fisher. His dad, not a hunter-fisher. And so they said, Uncle John, can you help us out? And I said, sure. I said, I can I can teach him to shoot. I can, you know, dad's going to go to hunter safety with him. Um, well, now dad is a big pheasant hunter. Dad goes goose hunting with us. Mom, who was, I would say, borderline anti-hunting activist, vegetarian when I very first met her, Peace Corps volunteer that, you know, traveled the world doing good for everything. She gets it. She's a science person, but she had never been exposed to anybody that was a hunter. So when I started talking to her about why we hunt, and okay, it's for food, it's for this, it's, you know, it's a sustainable thing. We're only taking X number of animals when the population allow it. Oh, that seems reasonable. I think she's completely flipped from what I would call anti-vegan, tough, tough hate hunters to where her son, I, I had my nephew put in for a U-tag. We have special U-tags in Colorado for female of the species. They're much easier to draw. Well, he drew a, U, drew a U-tag second year he's eligible. So we go up on the mountain. We go to 12-8. You know, we you know had the whole experience. We do the whole nine thing. Shoots and misses at 200 yards. I was like, oh, that could have been so perfect. Climb back down the next day. Got to do it all over again. I'm climbing back down. I'm like, what is up? And it's my gun. Scope was loose. And I'm like, man, I am the worst uncle ever. Oh. But he didn't. He didn't care. He's like, you know what? That was awesome. His dad was with us. He's like, that was so cool. We spotted him and then went up the mountain and like we were across from him. And they were so excited with a miss, but I was disappointed. But you know, it, it was about the experience. It was about the excitement. Went up the next day, same thing. Eighty yards, killed a sheep. The kid, I've got a picture of him. Probably my favorite hunting picture. He's just like hands up in the air, just yes, like a touchdown, like coolest experience ever. Um, they now have a mounted ewe sheep in their house. Not in a million years would I have ever thought they would have a sheep in the freezer plus a mounted ewe in the, in the living room over the fireplace. So I, I just think those are those are the experiences that, you know, as a hunter, if you're not fostering, if you're not helping grow, if you're not engaging 
I'm not talking anti-hunters. If you're not engaging just the general populace, you're missing the boat as a hunter. I think it's your it's your it's your duty to engage them in a good light. Exactly. I I I agreed. I mean, that was one of the reasons when Campfire was started is to to start telling our story in the way we wanted to tell it. And, and the most powerful way hunters can do that is on a one-to-one basis with just individual people. And I've had those exact same experiences myself with people that, uh, you know, aren't hunters. And even even some that were, I would say, borderline anti-hunters. Interestingly, when I was in university, I had a uh, spring-summer rotation I, I did a, my first degree was in biology. I did the co-op program, and it was up in northern BC. Out of uh, do, you know, do you know where Smithers is, John? Oh yeah, it's yeah. Anyways, it was some close to there. But so I drove up from Victoria with this girl who was also in the biology program, and she was basically an anti hunter. We had a pretty lengthy discussion about hunting on the way up because I had talked about my intention to shoot a bear that spring, and uh, she wasn't very fond of that idea. But anyway. To, to make a longer story short, I ended up shooting a bear and, and uh, made sausages out of it. And by the end of the summer, she's eating bear sausage. You know, she realized that I was a, a good human being and a thoughtful person. And uh, she realized how many bears are up there. It's just polluted with bears. And, uh, and yeah, she was eating bear sausage. And her perspective had entirely changed. And uh, I never got into her got in her face or you know got confrontational just i think just showed her who i am and what i do and and that was enough that she in in really her her negative feelings toward hunters were born of not not of interactions with hunters but interactions with with at that time not social media but mainstream media and and disney and you know the that sort of anti-hunting zeitgeist that seems to dominate a lot of the uh you know the uh uh, sort of popular entertainment, so she she had been a product of that and had never really met a, a hunter, I don't think. So, so it's a prime opportunity in, in situations like that just to talk to somebody and be reasonable and rational and and uh, you know why not? You might you might change somebody to be a little more open minded. And that's exactly what it's. I, I go out of my way to talk to non hunters. We have a lot of summer sheep counts in Colorado that take place during the week on really popular hiking trails and just last uh, last week no week before i was out on one and i mean it's like one of the top 10 wildflower hikes in colorado like it's in a book and you know you get there at 4 30 in the morning to leave and you come back and there's 150 cars in the parking lot but on the way down we stopped my buddy and i stopped and we had you know we saw a couple mountain goats and i said well let's just set up the scope here and so we just sat on the side of the trail and set up the scope and i mean we're in camo, and I think that always throws people for a loop because they want to know, oh, are you hunting? Is there hunting season? And I always tell people, I wear camo for a couple of reasons when I'm not hunting. One, it's probably the best gear I have, and it's going to keep me warm, dry, and it's not going to get trashed, and it's not cotton. And I said, I actually want to wear the gear that I'm going to use when I hunt to make sure it works. And so I wear a lot of camo sometimes when I'm not even hunting. But you talk to those people, and I'm like, "Oh, there's two goats over there, and it's a nanny and his kid." And they're like, "Where?" And they can't see they can't see the forest for in front of them. But you get them in a spotting scope, you get it dialed in, and you're like, "Just look through the scope, don't move, and look for the movement. You'll see the white." And then they're like, "Whoa!" And then they immediately pop up and they're like, "Where are they?" And I'm like, "Look in the scope, find a big rock, find a tree." And when you take the time to kind of walk them through what you're doing, and then you explain to them, "Hey, listen, I'm counting these for the." CPW, Parks and Wildlife, if there's a certain number in here, we know we can harvest a certain percentage without harming the population. You know, and then they say, well, is it all, what do you do with the kids? What do you do with the, I said, we have both male and female goat tags in Colorado for just that reason. There are places we want to knock the population down, so we do harvest nannies. Um, they're all late, you know, October seasons. The kids are usually fine. Um, and I said, if we're, you know, we're after a trophy species, well, why do you just, do you just shoot them and leave the meat? No. That's the whole point of this is to take the meat out. You take the trophy parts, but you also take the meat. And I think that's another thing. I, I have a barbecue in the summer, and I'll bring whatever I've got in the freezer, most exotic piece of meat. I'll tell people if you're coming, bring something. I served uh, mountain lion this year at my summer barbecue. Bacon wrapped with barbecue, and it you couldn't have told. If I told them it was pork, they wouldn't have known the difference. Yep. 
And that is something that the people that are anti-hunters that come to my house, they see my trophy room, they get all freaked out. But then I'm like, we eat it. There's mountain lion downstairs. They're like, what? And I'm like, come on down. We're going to try a piece. And it just, it really changes their perspective when they see the whole circuit. It's not, and, and it's, the problem is it's not a one or two minute conversation. It's a long car ride conversation mm-hmm. or a five to 10 minute, make a good impression if they're still willing to talk to you continue to push it and that's what i i always do if they're if they're absolutely flabbergasted and don't want to talk to me i don't pressure them. but if they're interested and start asking questions sure I'll, I'll entertain them i don't care what's five minutes out of my day when i'm doing that so i think all those things are are, are important no i agree john it actually really makes you aware of your own expertise as a hunter when uh discussing wildlife you know it, it to me one of the i shouldn't say almost universal traits but almost universal traits of the of the non-hunting crowd is most of them really don't know anything about wildlife you know they don't know where you'd expect to see a moose versus a sheep versus a uh you know a pronghorn they just they just don't know and uh yeah so a lot of people's opinions on wildlife and wildlife management are born of thoughtful consideration after you know lengthy investigation they're just born of knee-jerk reactions to you know the stimuli they receive passively and and so it's really not that difficult for a lot in a lot of cases to to talk these people off of that platform because they you know they don't really get the information anywhere else like it's where where would they get it right mm-hmm. so i think you're, you're right john it's our opportunity when we have these interactions to take the time and put the effort in to discuss this with people because if we don't do that as individuals they may never hear you know our story told properly from anywhere anybody else exactly yeah, i mean that's i'd encourage all hunters to do that i mean you're not going to turn everybody around but just stopping and talk to them whether it's at the gas station when you're you know you've got a buck in the truck or if it's you know i i do it at dinner parties all the time my wife you know drives her crazy because you know we go somewhere and the first thing is oh you you make beer that's usually you know the first tick for all the husbands will come over and then some will talk about hunting some will ask about question and so we usually, you know, if I go to a party, I'll bring a sausage platter. I'll bring something to put on the grill that's, you know, wild game. And a lot of people are, are very interested in it. And I would say a very small percentage are really, truly, truly anti-anti-hunting. It's the ones, like you said, that are uneducated or actually not, not even educated. They just don't know. Um, it's not really taught. It's not taught in schools much. Um, wildlife biology and conservation. I mean, I, I would say I didn't know much about it when I started hunting. I learned it through the process of, you know, working with the Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society and knowing that, you know, conservation and trap and transplant and radio collars are all paid for by raffles or $100 or auctions or things like that. And it it does make a difference when you explain to people that this money is being raised and it's not tax. It's not, you know, it's not from the government. It's from other hunters. And so everybody, you know, everybody benefits from wildlife on the landscape but it's really hunters footing the bill absolutely and i think you nailed it very very rarely do you or or me in my experience have come across somebody when you offer a piece of game meat to them do they say absolutely no bloody way it's always i didn't know you could eat that i'll try a little bit and nine times out of ten it's uh that's pretty good very very rare do they say I won't try that again, but at least they give it a shot. And I've, I've told countless stories about friends over the years that have basically gone the same way. You can't eat bear. Well, let's have a chat. And now they've got their hunting license and they, they, they hunt and their, their families are now eating game meat. Like, hell, to, tonight we, we just had moose. I, <laughs> I did a fly-in hunt last year and we're still eating a ton of the moose that we came back with and it, that's all we eat here is game meat very very rare will we actually go out and buy pork chops or something like that it's you, you got to talk to them on a level that's that, that that's relatable and and food does that sitting around a campfire does that and trying to pull that negative emotion and that negative stigma that a lot of them have been subject to by these these campaign attacks and these campaign ads you you see it with with these organizations they just dump a ton of money into these big billboards and these 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 libelous attacks on something to try and 
to be blunt, fundraise, right? And the, the minute you can say, no, did you realize that black bears in British Columbia, for example, they, they estimate 160,000 of them just in BC alone, which is the highest population in North America. And they're edible. And it's a scientifically managed season. It's not a the big misconception that I've talked to a lot of people about is, well, you can just go out and shoot them whenever you want, right? There's, there's no limits. Well, no, there's a lot more to it. And when you break it down that, that way, and you say that there's, there's science involved and there's meat retention requirements and it's delicious. The the conversation ends up being a little easier for them to digest. So we just got to keep doing what we're doing. I think. I mean, I, I always take it to the, it's free range, it's organic, it's local, mm-hmm. and it, it's better for you without hormones. I mean, I give them the whole, I give them the whole spiel mm-hmm. and I just tell them, I said, you know, and it's there for the taking. You just have to put in the effort to go get it. No one that I know hunts because it's cheaper. They hunt <laughs> yep. for, it, it, it's, it's the, the hunt is there. It's for the adventure, the camaraderie. It fulfills, you know, a primal need to get you, you know, back to your roots. But the bottom line is you're going to end up with, you know, even a cow elk is 160 pounds of meat. You're going to end up with quite a bit of good edible meat. And I do that all the time. I've got, you know, six employees and uh, only one of them actually hunts. And I share game with them all the time. And I think that's really important is sharing game with non-hunters. But don't just give them all the crap. Give them some good cuts. Give them some, you know, burgers, some sausage. I do a lot of summer sausage. I have stuff made into, you know, things that are more tasty. They're probably less like wild game. And they usually do pretty well with that. I mean, and now I've got to the point where, you know, hey, hunting season's coming up. I need to clean the freezer out. What do you guys want? And I'll bring each of them 20 or 30 pounds of something. And they're, they're pretty happy about it. And these are, like I said, these are absolutely non-hunters that work for me. Got one... Our newest newest bookkeeper is not happy with what I do. I have to be really cautious. I can't like take a phone call and have her listening. But I think she's coming around. And so it's it's been a you know year and a half of me explaining. I'm going hunting. It's okay. Well, I just like the deer. They're so cute. And I'm like, well, the mountain lions have to eat them. And if they you feed them in your yard, the mountain lions are going to come to your yard. Well, you shouldn't shoot the mountain lions. Well, they're managed species, just like you said. Everything's everything's for a reason. So. Exactly. That's one of my favorite things there is mountain lion. Everybody goes, you can't eat that. And I I was the president of my local fishing game club for about six, seven years. And every single banquet we threw, that was the number one item to go and go quicker than it could be put out. There was lineups. So, oh, you got mountain lion? Then there'd be lineups waiting for the buffet line to to start. It was that and lynx. Another one that a lot of people don't understand is incredibly delicious. And it's, as, as you said, though, it's not their fault. They, they get that uh, barrage of misinformation, we'll call it, uh, from the hell. There was that one, uh, th- that one video a couple of years ago, Wolves Change Rivers, right? How quick did that take off? And because it was, it was beautifully done, I'll give them that. They, they narrated it properly. There was a, there was, there was a good, uh, good story behind it. Great cinematography but it didn't take long for the biologists to go "Mm, no the trophic cascade kind of didn't go that way (laughs) but it's still one they clutch onto so we just got to keep telling our story i think so speaking of telling a story what's been your most memorable experience for you in the outdoors doesn't have to be hunting related but just in general um most memorable um, it's probably is hunting related because, you know, that's where I spend, you know, I, I do a lot of scouting. I do a lot of camping. I'll do some backpacking. My wife forces me to climb 14 or sometimes, and I've pretty much sworn those off now because it's just too many damn people. Um, I, I really think coming to BC on my very first stone sheep hunt was probably my greatest outdoor experience. I'd never been to northern BC. I'd never driven on the you know Alaska Highway. And it was a total last-minute deal. I had won a raffle from Grand Slam Club, and it was a it was a doll sheep with Mackenzie Mountain Outfitters um, and NWT. And I talked to those guys. I said, "Listen, I've killed a doll sheep in Alaska." I said, "I'm really 
trying to get a you know grand slam finals i said i really want a stone sheep and they're like well we don't have that much money into it let's make some calls and so i visited with all the stone sheep outfitters i could i talked to them i said here's my deal so i got i got a credit you know i could use it and leif olson called me on a tuesday and he said can you be here on a saturday i've got a cancellation and i'm like uh he goes i'll take all the money you've got from grand slam is you're done and i was like okay so I left on a Saturday, got there on a Sunday, but I mean, it was like scramble, scramble. I was ready. I, you know, I had, I was in shape. I had my stuff together, but I mean, it was a scramble. Book a plane ticket, and the only way I could get there was I actually flew to Alberta, Edmonton, and then drove all the way to Toad River. So it was like a 13-hour tail end drive. Um, hunted 12 days. Had absolutely miserable weather. Um, didn't see a legal ram until day 11 of my 12-day hunt, and I missed. And the miss was... Oh, boy. Yeah, 254 yards, too. But the miss was partially my fault, partially, you know, the guide had peeked up over the rocks, and he said, the ram's right there, it's 250 yards away, shimmy up there and shoot it. He said, but wait till it turns broadside. So I literally was crawling up a rock. He's, like, holding one of my feet... And I'm laying there, and I've got a dead rest, but it's a head-on ram because he sees me and he's looking at me. 254 yards, I, I got this. This is a 300 short mag. I, I can shoot that thing all day, every day. It turns, jumps three times, and I go to, like, shift and get a, another solid rest, and I didn't get a solid rest. And yank the trigger. Well, that was a really, really long walk back to camp. And, I mean, there were tears shed. I was so – I was like, I'm never – gonna get back up here this that was that was my chance and i think that long walk i don't know seven eight miles back to camp was pretty therapeutic because i was like here's the deal my guide was a new zealand special forces and he'd spent tons of time in the mountain and he had friends that were killed in afghanistan and i'm like i just missed a stone sheet this isn't the end of the world and i think once you get that mindset you're like all right everything's gonna be all right the next day, we're climbing a mountain to look for one last ram. Ram comes at us at 57 yards, but he's got the sun behind him. He's like, I can't tell. I don't know if it's legal. I can't tell. And I'm like, just tell me. I'm literally going to shoot him in the face. I'm like, I will shoot that ram. He's head on. I can't miss this time. He's like, I don't know. And he turned and ran off, and it was like 250. He's like, I think he's legal. I'm like, mm, I don't think he is. I said, let's just – let's not – and so that was 12, 13 days of, you know, misery, 11 days of rain, the whole nine yards. And I got back to, I got back to the road there and, you know, get out and the new guys are coming in and, you know, I'm beat up. I've been, you know, rained on and hailed on. And I'm like, that was a really cool experience. And so I'm riding back with one of the guides and he's like, well, you know, my new client's not coming in for three days. I'm like, well, I've got two more days left. I don't have to fly out. I said, is there any place we can go, like, day hike off the highway? And he's like, you just got your ass beat for 13 days, and you're asking me. I said, I'm never going to be here again. How do I make this happen in the time I have left? And he's like, well, I don't know. Let me see if we can go in a backpack tomorrow. And so we go back to the main lodge, and Leif's like, you know, I heard you wanted to go sheep hunting tomorrow. And I'm like, well, yeah, if there's a place, he goes – can't do that i said it's there's no place right off the highway that's in my unit you know blah 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 so i was like all right well he invited me back two years later on another cancellation hunt because he's like you're not going to quit you're not going to gripe you're not going to complain you're going to go wherever i tell you and i've got a hunt that i need to put somebody in that's going to be a good hunt it's booked but i got a guide in there but i don't have i don't have a hunter so he's like come back up and i'm like all right so that was two years later Day four of that hunt, kill the ram, you know, gorgeous, you know, gorgeous ram, unbelievable country, not a lick of rain for the whole trip. But that whole BC, just that's an experience. And I hope people that go there don't rush it. Like some guys are like, oh, fly me in, fly me out. I'm like, I want to ride a horse till my ass hurts. I want to go up a mountain and then not see anything and then come back down. Um, and that's what I told my guide on the second trip. I said, listen, I got my... 10, 12 days of sheep hunting in, we can start with like day 10 tactics and like go from there. I don't, I don't need the experience. I'm, I'm happy to, happy to kill a sheep. So I think that's without a doubt, my single best hunting experience, you know, 
sleep like a baby, you know, have vivid, wild dreams, no cell phones, like all that stuff. Like it resets my life when I go on a sheep hunt like that. I think it just, it clears your mind and all you care about is what am I eating for breakfast that's not freeze dried? How many days of food do I have left? Is my stuff going to be dry tomorrow when I go on the hike? What's the weather going to be like? I mean, all that stuff, I feel like it just, it's good for the soul. And it, you know, I think it's probably good your first sheep hunt was like that. Because you know what sheep hunting is like now. I mean, if you'd gone out for your first stone sheep hunt on day two, killed a big ram, you know, on a bluebird day, y- your impression of sheep hunting might be a little bit different. Maybe not. But I, my very first year stone sheep hunting was, other than we had good weather, was a real grind. And I, I was really, really cautious about shooting a sublegal ram. So oh, yeah. I ended up uh, seeing a ram at about 69 yards. Real heavy, heavy horned ram, but wasn't full of curl because he was broomed. But the sun was to his back, so I couldn't, couldn't count rings or anything. Yeah. And uh, and again, I was green. And I saw that ram again um, uh, a few days later, and I was pretty sure he was legal, but I I just wasn't quite sure enough. He was about three hundred yards away, and then because uh, I just couldn't get good light on him. And then the third time I saw that ram, the sun was behind me. He was about. 300 yards away with a bunch of other rams all bunched up together and he was at least 13 years old he was a big old ram and now now that i sheep hunted a lot i know he had the big pot belly and sway back and roman nose and he was obviously an old ram i just didn't know that at the time right but anyway he was all bunched up with these other rams so i just i couldn't shoot through the bunch of rams right and then they all wandered off together so i never got a shot at him but i actually had the safety off my rifle but that was uh that was about ten days of grinding through the mountains, and when I got home, I mean I was elated because my goal on my first year of sheep hunting was just to see a ram. That, I didn't expect to kill a ram; I just wanted to see a ram. And of course, I'm I'm on, I'm in BC, so I didn't have a guide. I'm just doing this on my own, right? Uh, but when I got home for probably a month following that hunt, every single night I would dream about sheep hunting, like literally dream about sheep hunting at night. Uh, you know, climbing mountains, glassing sheep. I I thought I'd developed some kind of a syndrome, and uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to need therapy or, or where things were going. But uh, that's it, man. But anyway, the, you know, the next year I ended up getting a, a really nice ten year old ram on on the second day of the hunt. But you know that that first year was was probably the best in some respects because I learned so much, well, and I really got to. Ex- got to I got. And I got to glass a lot of sheep and age a lot of sheep. Like I was counting rings on banana rams because I was it was so new to it, right? Just thinking, well, how and you, and you get to experience all that. And at the end of it, you're actually kind of not a bad sheep hunter. You know, you, you've actually you, you've actually had to learn how to do it. And uh, yeah, so I think that's a good way to. I think that that first hunt was probably a blessing. Yeah, yeah you're, for stone sheep, for sure. I would have hated to go there and kill it on on day two. I think I, I totaled it up one time. I think I have 86 days sheep hunting in my four rams that I've killed. And that doesn't include rams and hunts that I've been on with others. So a couple hundred days, 150 days, something like that. And your perspective changes. And I can give you another prime example. I had a buddy that drew a non-resident Colorado tag. There's 15,000 people that apply for 20 tags, and he got one of them. And he calls me up. He's panicked. I can hear it in his voice. He's like, I, 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 I don't, I don't, they charged my card. I think I got a sheep tag. And I'm like, relax. He goes, where did you tell me to put in? And I'm like, well, it's a unit. It's not close to here. But I know there's sheep there. He's like, have you ever been there? I'm like, no. But we'll figure it out. And we spent four different trips up there scouting. We hiked in with horses and backpacks and all that for unguided for nine days and he almost shot a half curl on like day three he's like that's the only ram i'm gonna i'm like just you gotta like i was happy as a clam he was all stressed out his sleeping bag was crap we had a forest fire that started near us you know he had brought every freeze-dried meal he could think of in perfect order and he was eating them in order and i had like a bag of chips and some salsa i had packed a bag with you know the horse i had oh i had all kinds of apples he's like where'd you get all this stuff i'm like well you didn't you don't have to suffer if you don't want to but his gear wasn't good. And so end of nine days, he, I didn't think he was coming back. He was miserable as could be. And I could he's here talking to my wife. And he's like, John was happier every day we were up there. And it was miserable. I'm like, no, that was sheep hunting. That's like, there's people that die for that kind of stuff. We went back towards the end of the season, fourth day. I think we had hiked 18 miles in 36 hours. He killed a 
bomber, 11-year-old, full curl, just broomed, no teeth left, old-ass ram, 10 miles from the truck. But he was like, that was worth it. And I'm like, that's what, when you get to that level and you figure out, listen, you're looking for needle in the haystack. You're looking for that 10, 12-year-old ram. When you find it and you kill one, that makes all the difference in the world. Just fun. Oh, yeah, there's no uh, no regrets whatsoever when you no. walk up to ram like that and put your hands on the on the horns. Yeah. yeah. I, I just, I just wish there were more sheep in the world for everybody to be able to hunt because if you could gain yeah. that experience and i mean part of the experience is it's difficult difficult to draw difficult to go you guys have the advantage of being able to go pretty much whenever you want um i mean i, I i've given it a hard thought of moving to british columbia and trying to figure out how to become a resident if you know that's how dedicated i am to sheep hunting but i don't think my wife's gonna have that so <laughs> yeah, but yeah it's we, i mean yeah. it, it is a sickness but. for sure and I agree, the sheep hunting does become a an obsession and, a, and an addiction. And I find for me, I've taken a couple rams, and I'm, my hunting partner, I we went out and he got a ram, and and I've helped another one of my partners get a ram. And it's like, I, I you know, just like being out in the mountains hunting sheep, and you know whether I'm pulling the trigger or not doesn't really make much difference anymore. Uh, but you know, a lot of our listeners of this podcast, you know, aren't hunters at all, and you know, this is a very Did we lose JP quickly for a no. second there? I think we lost him. And, and I get that they're they're not hunters as a as a mass group for your camp one campfire. But I think mm-hmm. if you can explain the passion, understand what it takes to suffer, it, there has to be something to that that's good. If you can explain to them that like people go out of their way to do this activity. And it's it's not easy. It's not it's not a walk mm-hmm. in the park. There's no shortcuts. Um, I no. think that's that displays the dedication of the hunter. And I think you know sheep hunters are a slightly different breed than your average deer, elk, or antelope <laughs> hunter. Yep. But you know, once they go, I feel like the sheep hunter is. I won't say it's the pinnacle. You have a different outlook on life. You have a different outlook on hunting. Um, I would say you know things slow down for you you're not you're not in such a big hurry and the little things like you said the little things don't bother you as much you're like oh that's not that's not a big deal i can i've dealt with worse and so it does it changes your perspective but you know for all the listeners that aren't sheep hunters i think you know most guys don't start out most hunters don't start out as sheep hunters it's kind of natural progression of the bigger Mm -hmm. hunting and i mean you know going and killing a deer or an elk every year for meat and that's all you want to do perfect you know what that's still hunting that's still sustainable harvest that's still putting food on the table and you know make it making a difference in the local population if that's what the biologist asks you to do so i'm, I'm good with that oh com- completely get it there there's a, a poster i saw a few years ago and i think it's the five levels of the hunter right and it talks about the new hunter who gets all the the latest gear and is out every time and then there's one that's anything that's legal and filling the freezer and then i i think the sheep hunter in all honesty is probably near four or five near the end where it becomes more and more about the chase and more and more about the adventure and that connection that we all share right and i i i think that's that that's what a lot of this conversation has been about is that the last thing on on my mind going out as I've written a lot of stories about it is pulling the trigger I've let far more animals walk that I could have taken legally humanely ethically etc you name it but I've just chose to to watch them just because I wasn't chasing that part of the hunt at that time so I've I think that's huge and the evolution of a hunter, right? And I think that's where we sit. So, uh, sorry, Steve, I'm, I'm back now. My computer completely died on me, but um, I, I was going to say something. I don't know if it's a, it's kind of poor timing for it now. We, like I say, we're talking about sheep hunting primarily, which is understandable. But for anybody who's listening that's not a hunter but's interested in it, you know, there's a lot of great hunting opportunities that are really accessible, and you'll. The, I don't know if you guys touched upon that, but, uh, you know, 
grouse hunting, for example, bird hunting, those things are accessible to anybody and they're, they're a ton of fun and you'll get all the camaraderie and, and, uh, adventure that, you know, that hunting brings it, you know, for what it is. And, uh, anyway, I just don't want people to, that are listening to this to think that it's intimidating to get into hunting because, you know, if you find a good mentor, there's, there's very accessible hunting all through North America. No, completely. Yeah, no, and that's what we touched on too. We said, you know, there's no, nobody starts out as a sheep hunter. That's, that's kind of the, you, you go through the levels of getting there. And I mean, I still, I've got a goose lease out here in Colorado. I still go duck and goose hunting all the time. And I have just as much fun taking somebody on one of those, you know, whether it's a, you know, youth hunt or a mentored hunt or something like that. I'm like, these are, these are fun times. They're easily accessible. The, you know, the cost to get into the game or the barrier to entry is very low. And, you know, there's public land hunting, there's public land, you know, small game hunting, squirrels, rabbits, you know, doves, you, you name it. You know, there isn't a place you can't find a public land opportunity except for maybe Texas. Texas is tough in the States. Um, but, north, you know, mm-hmm. north of the border, you guys have a lot, a lot of opportunity. And I, I think the easiest way for somebody to get into it is, you know, either ask somebody, your neighbor, a cousin, a family member, whoever that hunts, ask them, hey, I'd like to get into this. How do I do this? Um, and then same thing. If you're, you know, go to a hunting club, go to a, you know, go to a meeting, go to a Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and just say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm interested in learning more. What can you teach me? I guarantee to you there are people that will help you and especially in Colorado we have youth hunting programs for people that aren't into hunting that their parents aren't into hunting we've got some like Colorado Youth Outdoors which is like a high school age they start them in the shooting sports and then slowly bring them up to you know small game and waterfowl and then they do a big game hunt kind of like as a graduation Um, so I mean there are I, I think the hunting world does a pretty good job of trying to grow their own the problem is it's the person that wants to hunt has to take the first step. Because I can't go out and just grab somebody and go, hey, you're coming hunting with me. You have to come to me and say, hey, I want to go hunting. Teach me, show me. It's Absolutely not that agree. Yeah. So that's, that's as we talked about just before we started the podcast, an hour can fly by. And there's an hour right there. <laughs> See? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure we could talk for an hour quite easily. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm positive we could. That was awesome, John. And really like to thank you for your time. And uh, hopefully, are you going to be at Sheep Show in 2023? Oh yeah! Don't I haven't missed one. I don't think I've missed one since 2005. So excellent. I go, I go so every JP year. JP and I so. were going to be there this past year. JP and I were going to be there in 22, but then the weird border things happened. So yeah. Anyway, yeah, we're we're booked for 2023. So let's. You can't come I'll to the Westland beer. Club, but. Uh, <laughs> that sounds great. So you can you can still go. There's a oh, less than one you? international. If you've never killed an international oh, sheep, you can still go. That's right. I, I figured you had one of those. By oh, now. and is that is that in the same room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a hell of an environment. Yeah, it's so. all at the same time. They do three international hunts and then three North American hunts, and they may. I think they're bumping it up this year. We talked about adding a couple of different things. I think I'm de facto on the committee. They're like, oh, hey, well, we need somebody for the committee, so. <laughs> um, but no, you can still go. Awesome, and I think you can still go even if you're not in the drawing. You just pay the twenty bucks and get your free beer. So it's a fun, yeah, it's a fundraiser. Me. It's a good time. It was so much fun, so much fun. So yeah. that sounds great, John. We'll see you there in 2023. All right, thanks, John. Thank you guys have a good night. All right, take care. Take care. <laughs>